0: This morning is going to be a whole lot of fun because we are going to be doing a tag team preaching style this morning. I've never done one of these, so we're each taking like 10, oh thanks for starting the clock, um, could have waited like 60 seconds for me. But uh, we're all going to take, yeah thanks for the signs, yeah we're going to have everybody standing up like, alright your time's up. This isn't a debate, this isn't like to see who's the best preacher, Um. It's just a a tag team. As we've already heard, we've already heard the passages that are going to be um, preached on this morning. And so what you're going to find is um, there's three preachers, and I'm not talking about me and Pastor Marshall and Pastor Josh. There are three preachers who are going to be preaching to you this morning. One is an old school guy in ancient wisdom known as Solomon. The next is going to be Jesus, the man of wisdom himself, and then the Apostle Paul. And what you're going to find is that though there are three preachers, there is one kind of collective message from these passages that is going to be declared to you this morning. Unfortunately, I got the short end of the stick, and I got the guy who's the most depressing and basically says, your life is meaningless. So, uh, but I am more than happy to step up here and bunt so that the runners can come in and score, and hopefully I'll set this uh, volleyball and they can come down and spike it into our lives. So with that said, I need, there's a couple caveats I want to urge you to resist this morning. Okay, as you hear the word of God being preached to you this morning, I'm going to ask you to not do two things. The first thing I don't want you to do, and I really want you to resist, is to walk back or reason in yourself what you are going to be told this morning. There are going to be some challenges from the word of God that you're going to immediately cuz I do this and pretty much all of us do this that when we hear it speak to us it's such a challenge that we often begin to reason and walk it back and say well it's not saying this it's not saying this resist the urge to say that's that well it must not be saying this and focus more on what it is saying all right so resist that urge we all have it but resist the urge to walk it back immediately the second thing I'm going to ask you to do which is connected to the first is resist the urge to justify your actions to somehow when you hear that you might need some correction in your life you immediately begin to justify the things you do in your life and make sure that you're reconciling it to what you've just been told to do in your life right so don't seek justification up front Don't walk things back as you hear from three preachers who are trying to communicate to you one word for your life. And this is it. This is the big summary of it all, is that what you do in your life can either produce meaninglessness in your life or your life can produce things that are meaningful. And so hopefully today, you'll hear from these three preachers of what is most important, how someone in Christ begins to live their life. And so we are going to first look And Ecclesiastes, right, this is the guy that is told to us is one of the wisest of people, right? And again, let me just reiterate, we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16 this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So logically, From the get-go, our foundation is we are a people that need reproof. We are a people that need correction. We are a people that need God to speak wisdom and truth into our lives because we do not ultimately know it. We have not ultimately experienced it, and it only is resting in him. And the word of God is meant for us to be trained by it, to order our lives, and to live rightly. And so now I have less than seven minutes to communicate to you this ancient wisdom that Solomon, even though he sounds like a grumpy old man who's watching Fox News and is just discrediting everything, he comes and says, okay, even though it sounds all pessimistic and negative and that there's no hope in this world, there is wisdom in it. And before we can really look at the passage that we're looking at, We have to understand the ancient Near East mindset. We have to understand Solomon's time, the culture, and the way they speak. And so in Ecclesiastes, you hear these refrains all the time. Vanity of vanities. And you hear this over and over again, because this is basically the thesis statement of all Ecclesiastes, because Solomon himself sought to explore everything under the sun. And so before I begin to look at this passage, let me just help break down some of these things. One, the word vanity. The the word vanity is actually in the Hebrew, Habel. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a name, Habel, Abel? It comes from the understanding that Abel lived a very short life, that though his offering was acceptable to God, his brother killed him, and all was meaningless in his life. He's like only a few verses in the Old Testament. We're, we're told that he was born, we're told that he offered, and then we're told that his brother killed him. And so the concept, there's all the, it's multi-layered, this word vanity. It's habel. It's like the guy's life, Abel, Very short-lived, very insignificant. The second kind of understanding of this term is like a vapor. This candle is lit. This candle is representing the presence of God in this room. It's a symbol, right? But if I were to blow this out, you would see a vapor. You would see a, a, a bit of a mist of smoke coming up, and with a gentle breeze of my hand or with just a slight breath, it becomes extinguished, it vanishes, it's the most gentle thing that is often extinguished by something else, so that's building upon this understanding of able short life, and now it's like a vapor, it's easily distinguished, and then it's another word, uh, they use Habel as the form of an idol. So idols in the ancient Near East would also be referred to as habel. What's an idol? An idol is a counterfeit god. It is not true. It is not good. And it is very false. And so this is building on this idea of vanity, right? And then the last is breath. Everybody take a deep breath and blow it out. Now I want you to grab it with your hands and put it back in your mouth. You can't do it, right? It's short-lived. It's a breath. So you pile all of this, and now we get an understanding of this term, this refrain that he is using over and over again, vanity. Well, he piles this on into a Hebrew idiom or a phrase that's often used and coined in the culture of the ancient Near East. He says, vanity of vanities. Well, we would best understand this when we say, Lord of lords. There's no dispute about it. It is the end-all, be-all, we might say. So vanity of vanities is just a a Hebrew idiom, a refrain that you're going to say is like, there's no dispute about it. It is complete meaningless. It's completely extinguishable. It's completely weak and it vanquishes very easily. It vanishes in a split second. It's so quick, short-lived, and it's the end all meaninglessness. That's what he's saying. Just like we would say, Lord of lords, that Jesus is the Lord of all lords. He is the master. He's undisputed champion of the world, he is Lord of lords. Well, these things that he's going to review and speak to us in this passage is vanity of vanities. It is the end all meaningless and uh, without purpose of life. It is a completely, utterly waste of time. And so what does he do? He goes on this exploration, we're told, in, in chapter one. He goes, I want to look under the sun, which is also a refrain and another thing. Under the sun, what Solomon is painting the picture is that everything under the sun, because in the ancient Near East, you have below the earth, on the earth, and above the earth. And so he says, everything below the sun, I am pursuing, I am exploring, and I am seeking where I can find wisdom and meaning for life. And so he goes on this exploration, and he tells us that everything under the sun Right from the get-go in his book, in his writing, he says everything under the sun is vanity of vanities, is worthless, is not worth being pursued. No matter how it might make us feel, all of it, I have come to conclude, is vanity of vanities. And so he takes this journey and he seeks, first and foremost, to explore wisdom. Is wisdom the means by which I can gain meaning in my life? So let me pursue all things wise, and he comes to conclude that, no, this is too ultimate vanity. Then he goes and, and begins to engage in all sorts of pleasures an inexhaustible treasure to accumulate for himself everything he can, to taste everything he can, to whatever is pleasing to his eye, he is going to seek out. And he finds that pleasure and inexhaustible treasure has, again, left him, like wisdom has under the sun, complete waste of time and ultimate vanity. Then he says, okay, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. If wisdom and, and all pleasure doesn't, I don't find meaning or significance in, then let me go to folly and madness. Let me just be an idiot and let me pursue these things to see maybe that side of the spectrum brings meaning and purpose in my life. And he says, nope, that doesn't work. Matter of fact, if you were to compare the two, wisdom's much better. Is the lesser of the both evils is what he ultimately says. But then he comes to our text today as he closes out chapter two, which is just his exploration, his journal writings of how he's journeying through life, looking for something that will bring meaning and significance to his life. And he says, now we come to labor and legacy. Labor and legacy offer nothing. He says this in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. He says, ultimately, the reason why labor and then legacy means nothing is because whatever you build for your life, you don't ultimately get to experience all of the benefit. You leave it to somebody else. And who knows if that guy's a fool or, 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 or wise about it. He can ruin and undo everything that you've worked so hard for all your life. And on top of that, you can't even get past the fact that you have to toil and toil and toil, and that there's no benefit. It even begins to build anxiety in you. He goes, man, you, have, you, you don't get rest ever when you're toiling. And so he's, to summarize, he's saying that to the one who p- pursues a life of work, who succeeds and accomplishes much from their work, will only find it spoiled by another, will find their leg- legacy short-lived, and will welcome despair and restlessness. Labor and legacy offers what appears to be a promise of meaning and wisdom for our lives, but they still fall short and they're deficient because they are not guaranteed. And therefore, he concludes that this too is vanity of vanities. So in conclusion, we understand, and he says this from the very beginning, he says that all under the sun is vanity and vanities. I believe he would say to you, which one of your bank accounts or RIAs can purchase the debt that you've accumulated with your sin? What work have you accomplished that will gain you access to the kingdom of God? What pleasures can you enjoy that would satisfy your cravings so much so that you would never even need to have another dose of it? What knowledge can you acquire that will guide your life rightly and bring honor to God? What relationship can you engage in that isn't severed ultimately by death? These are the things that cannot be, um, that will leave you wanting. And that's his point. These things cannot work anything good in your life. They are short. They fall short. They're the vainest of the vain. So therefore, don't pursue them. Instead of pursuing things that are under the sun, you should be longing and craving and have an appetite for things in the sun, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For those are the things that are the most fulfilling. So he's being pessimistic because he wants you to crave something better. Many of us are so satisfied with what we're already pursuing as if we're going to find at the end of the tunnel a different conclusion than Solomon himself. But we will not if we listen to the ancient wisdom. And I'm going to put before you what is better is life in the Son, the Son of God. For Christ's accomplishments... Does he not offer and extend to you the amount that he purchased on the cross to pay for all of your sins? 100% he has. The work of Jesus on the cross has satisfied even the penalties that you've accumulated and you deserve in your life. His life has revealed to us the wisdom we need to have the meaning and the usefulness and the significance of why we were even created to begin with. He even passes along his legacy, namely the power and the way he lived his life in the Spirit. He passes that on to us in the Holy Spirit to equip you and guide you at the way you ought to be living that is truly meaningful, truly significant. He is able to grant us access into the presence of his Father, and he welcomes us into a kingdom. He gives us eternal life, and he has defeated death so we can always be in relationship with him. In Jesus, we have the meaning and wisdom that Solomon was seeking, but never found in things under the sun. Only life in the sun can reveal to us the true meaning, purpose, and wisdom of our lives under the sun. So this is now where we turn to wisdom himself, Jesus the Christ, and the gospel that he shares with us.
1: As we think about the idea of wisdom, and go into the one who was the author of wisdom. And the idea that what do we do right now, and especially even as we looked at the ancient, as that's where Bruce spent his time thinking about what the ancient world thought. And now as we move in to Jesus' time. But I was wanted to think just a moment for about us a lot of times. Because we can get in this place where we especially in Western society where we're driven to acquire more wealth, to gain more possessions, to gain a high status level or a socioeconomic level, and we run after that. But Jesus in this moment, and through the passage of Luke that we're going to spend some time looking at for the next few moments, is going to remind us and and really call out to us that um, what do we really leave behind? Number one, we can't take any of those possessions, any of those things. It all stays behind when we leave. It doesn't go with us. We could spend all our time trying to acquire wealth, but what really matters is the spiritual wealth and resources that we can accumulate in this earth toward heaven. And so when we think about the word wealth, I want you just maybe in your mind for just a moment, when you think of that word, what do you think of? Because for a lot of us, we spend time thinking about that. We're thinking about money and stuff and status Maybe even we come to even idolize those who have a lot of that stuff, a lot of that wealth, people that we would think of when we think of those who have more than us or have more means than us. But let's be real. I mean, we live in North Alabama for the most of, our, most of us don't live in want. We have plenty of what we need, often more than what we need. It's the reason we go to buffet, all-you-can-eat restaurants, and it's the reason we acquire the most things we can. It's the reason we have subscriptions, so they just keep sending us more stuff. And if we're not careful, we, we can begin to idolize those things. And we, we even put certain people, and I just thought we'd show some pictures, of maybe some people that you would know about their wealth and their things. Anybody know who that person is? Elon Musk, right? What about this next person? You may know him too as well. Anybody know that? A, a picture of what we would probably consider as wealth. What about this person? A little more modern. Maybe the younger kids will know this one. LeBron, I mean has acquired vast amounts of wealth. And we think about maybe even this person. If you're a tech person, maybe you understand who this person is. Bill Gates. Or maybe even one of the wealthiest of wealthiest. Anybody know who's that? Warren Buffett. And all these people are pictures of what we often idolize and desire. We look at them, we hold them up. Maybe not who they are as a person, but we think about their wealth a lot. Wow, I wish I had whatever it may be. And we get to that place and we think about these things. But often we never think about what happens because then there's some other people I wanted you to see. You probably know these people too as well. Anybody know who that person is? Johnny Depp, right? We know them. They've, he's been in the news recently. But then you may even know this person. Maybe you've seen them before. They were pretty. Anybody know who that is? Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. But but then even one of the one of the greatest hip hop artists of all time. Anybody know who that is? Just go to the next picture. I think they'll maybe figure it out then. Anybody know that? That's who you know. MC Hammer. One of the greatest hip-hop artists of all time. You're too legit to quit. You can hammer and we don't want to see your dances, okay, right now. We can save that for later. But in that, these three people had some things in common. They had all the wealth and they ultimately lost all their wealth. It brought great, and here's what's interesting. They even say, have said on record, we never expected to lose it all. Because when we have that amount, when we, when we put all of our hope, all of our desires in our things and our stuff, they were never fully and finally satisfy our needs. No one expected ever to go bankrupt. They all thought they'd have their money forever. They all thought they'd have all these things forever. And Jesus is going to challenge us as we begin to think about our lives. As he looks at this parable in Luke chapter 12 that you heard earlier. And I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to look at a few passages really, really quickly. As Jesus lays out for them to think about kind of what they've done and what their life is about. And said from the crowd that day, one brother came. And so as we know, he said, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, if you've ever had a brother or a sister, you can know what this moment's like when all of a sudden you're offered maybe two halves of the cookie. Do you want the smaller one or the bigger one? When all of a sudden you find yourself at that moment where it was a not fair moment, like I deserved more. That's mine. And that's where this brother is. And often they would go to the rabbis at that day and time to kind of settle disputes like this. Well, tell him he's wrong. And he's frustrated in this moment. He's angry that his brother hasn't divided his state and Jesus knew. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus knew there was something deeper within that question. There was something greater for all of us to to think about. And yet even that was driving that brother and yet still drives us 2,000 years later. And we still struggle. It drives us to stave. It drives us to scrape and to steal and to borrow and even hoard things. And that word is Greed. In the passage that we probably read earlier, it talked about covetousness. It's the thing within us. And, and we all we won't ever say that we're greedy, but we all know people who are greedy. And it's in these moments, it's the battle within us for more and to acquire. And the desire of more. And Jesus knew that about this guy. He knew what his desires of his heart, and there was a greater issue than just dividing property. It was a heart issue within him. And so this is what Jesus said. He goes on to say this. Then he said, beware. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Like not just greed to have what Elon Musk has, not just greed to have what this person has or what the person on the street. Like everything, guard against it. Beware of it. Because life, it says in this, life is more. It's not, necess- it's not measured by how much you own. Greed is an unquenchable appetite. It's never fully and finally satisfies us. We can, we can be made to think that our money and our stuff are security. That's what happens with greed. It's Ultimately, who do we trust more? Do we trust God or our stuff? Do we trust God or our money? Where do we find our security? For this brother in this moment, he was looking for security in what he could gain or what his half of the property would be. But Jesus said, listen, life is so much more. It's not even measured by what you own. And then he goes on to tell this story that maybe you've heard before about this guy who sits down and he realizes his business is going well. His farm is doing really good. Good things are coming in. He's like, man, I got a bigger barn. So he builds bigger barns. He puts his stuff in the barns. And after a while, he starts going, well, man, I've got so much stuff. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy this. But then this is what Jesus said. But God said to him, in verse 20, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for. This issue of, That momentary thing that we don't think about. When we're acquiring stuff, it blinds us to the future. It blinds us to the reality that we are in. That this could all be taken away. Who will get everything you worked for? It's the thing that drives us to make a will. To make sure we've got our things in order. So when we die, that we make sure the right people get it. Because we don't want that person to get it or that person. Oh, they may misuse it. Like, there's some family members. I mean, I don't know. Like, maybe you've got some, and you're like, oh, they never get my stuff. i got to make sure. Put that in the will. I don't want the government to get it. Make sure they don't get it. They'll just misuse it. But in that, that's the driving force for many of us. This is what Jesus said in verse 21. But yes, a person is a fool who stores up earthly wealth, but not have A rich relationship with God. We're fools if we spend our life only to gain earthly things which we cannot take with us and not have a rich relationship with God. I don't think it's a problem that we have things. It's who's our God in the midst of those things. It's where do we find our richness? Is it in the stuff that we acquire or the person who we live for? And my challenge for us to think about is in what we may have. Are we seeking to find our security and our hope in that? I love this quote from R.C. Rowan. It says this, Poverty has many disadvantages, but riches destroys far more souls than poverty. As we think about these verses, we think about the things in the words of Jesus, let's shoot for things that are everlasting. How much more important a rich relationship with God is than the things that we can get in this earth because they will not follow us to heaven. Only the things that last. True wisdom. The true providing that comes from it. For us thinking through, listen, the wise man is one who Seeks after the things that are eternal, the eternal treasures that we can store up in heaven. What could be said of you today? Would it be said that you are rich in in God? Do you seek after the world or after the things of Him? When our richness is found in God, we are rich in grace, rich in faith. Rich in good works. Never until we've experienced Jesus himself. When we've been brought to him. Can we experience the gold that has been tried by fire. Never until our house has been made. Not with hands. But eternal hands of Jesus. Until our names are inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. And we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Then truly we are rich in God. His treasures are incorruptible. They never go bankrupt. And the bank never breaks. His inheritance never fades away. And man cannot deprive us or deprive him of good works. And our, our lives and in death and in life will never be snatched from his hands. And in all this we have in life and death. And the things to come, the best is when we are sure in him and our life is in him and we have a richness in him, nothing compares, nothing compares to the love of Jesus. Nothing compares to what we may acquire. So what richness you may have, don't let it be your boast and don't let it be your identity. But only the richness that you can have in Jesus. The true believer, the only man or woman who is really wealthy and wise, is those who serve and give and honor Jesus, not based on what they will acquire in this world, but on based on what their life will experience in the next. Our good deeds and our service to Jesus is the only thing that will outlive us. But Paul spent some time reminding us today of how we're to do that in our lives. Don't store up yourselves treasures on earth. Only the fools do that, but enjoy the relationship of a rich relationship with Jesus, because
2: that's what lasts. Amen. Three biblical preachers saying one very biblical thing, along with three other (coughs) contemporary preachers, and that is you can't take it. ...with you. You can't take it with you. My brother has helped me understand this, and it was a long time ago... ...but we were in line at our house to eat. And if you know teenagers, they like to eat. I have a few now, actually. And Justin and I were competitive eaters, if you will. We tried to eat very fast because we wanted to go back for seconds... Problem was there wasn't always a right proportion of seconds because we wanted a full plate. And so we would try to out-eat one another in order to get there in line again so that we could get more food, right? And so he happened to be before me and piled on the spaghetti. And I'm like thinking the whole time, man, that's that's too much. You know, how can he get any more on this plate? Because I'm already angling for seconds, right? This is the first time we're through, right? And so he's in a hurry. I'm in a hurry right behind him. And in his turning to go to the table, in his swiftness, he left the spaghetti behind and his plate empty. And it was suspended there for a moment that I can still picture in my mind sitting there beautifully stacked and then hits the floor and is ruined. I was so angry. In fact, my blood kind of boils even now thinking about it. That good, wasted food on the floor. And I was mad. I really was. I was mad at him for uh, the rest of the night, in fact, and uh, didn't really enjoy my dinner. And we can kind of laugh at that, you know, and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's funny stuff. You know, kids do that. But how many of us have great anxiety over spilled milk, over splattered spaghetti that can be replaced... How many of us have spent so much time angling and trying to attain this or trying to get for this, striving and grasping for the wind? And what we find is we come up with nothing, like building our life on the sand. And when you build things in the sand, they're going to fall. They're going to go away. They won't be there the next morning. The tide takes them out or... Little kids take them out. I learned that at the beach too, by the way. Built a beautiful turtle. And it was gone in no time to the feet of two little guys. (laughs) Happened to be related to the one who spilled the spaghetti. (laughs) When we make our life about the things of this world, we're building our life on the wrong foundation. ...because you can't take it with you. You won't be able to. It's not that it's bad. Don't hear us today... ...and don't hear the preachers of the Bible today... ...saying the things of this world are bad. They're not. They're just vain... ...when you make them what this life is about. Because they are not. They are gifts of our Creator. So today, I'm going to enjoy sausage and hot dogs... ...barring they don't fall on the floor. I might even eat them if they do. (laughs) Build your life is what these preachers are all saying in unison together... ...on the rock who is Christ Jesus. Notice what the wise thing to do is to look beyond the sun, right? Who's beyond the sun? The sun is everything to us here in this little galaxy... ...but who is beyond the sun who's higher than the sun, Paul will say it this way, seek the things which are above, where Jesus is enthroned in power and glory. That's where our mind should be. That's where our treasure should be. And as St. Augustine said so long ago, what we love is where our treasure is because he's following Jesus, right? What we love is what we are. So what do you love in life? Do you love relaxing? Do you love entertainment? Do you love a big account or retirement? Or do you like leisure? Everybody's different. Everybody's got their thing. Here's the thing, none of those things are bad in themselves, but when we make them the main thing, it becomes sin for us. And so Paul is going to draw us down into saying this, ...if you've been raised with Christ... ...which is to say, if you've been baptized... ...he's already talked about going down with Christ... ...and dying with Christ... ...and then being raised to new life... ...so if that's you today... ...if you've been baptized... ...the holy waters of baptism... ...if you've entered into new life... ...then seek what is above... ...where God is enthroned. Do not chase after the wind... ...instead, take the things of this life... ...that God gives you... ...good food, a nice house... ...a good family. Breathe them in and just as we practiced earlier... ...let them go. That's how we are to enjoy this life. It doesn't say, oh, I have to sit down... ...and really hate this meal today... ...or really despise what God has given me. No, 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 no. Don't hear that. Instead, here, breathe it in... ...and then let it go. Let it go. And if God decides to take your car... If he wants that back, if he wants your house, if he wants you to load up and move somewhere, if he wants anything in our life, we have open hands. We don't go grasping for our own. We are not me, mine, and I. But instead, we, like our Lord, give of ourselves. Now, you've heard about being greedy, ...Paul is going to drill down into something that's really close to all of us. Because some of you said, you know what, I, I don't have a lot of money... ...and I don't make that, you know, I'm not really known. I just kind of have my little normal life and I like it. That, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. And it is wonderful to be thankful for a simple life. <laughs> money can complicate things. Power can complicate things. Popularity can complicate things. So be thankful for a simple life for sure. However, all of us have a body. And this is where Paul goes. Paul will say, okay, so what does it mean then to set our mind on things that are above? It means you conduct your body in holiness, in righteousness. Did you notice the list that he gives there? He begins with this Greek term pornea, which you can imagine where we get the term pornography from it's just a term that simply means sexual immorality of any kind which is where Paul goes now I wouldn't have gone there in my sermon I would not have been like hey guys if we think about the things above then yeah let's let's think harps and maybe I don't know sitting around hanging out with one another worshiping Jesus listen to some cool worship music that's what I'm thinking when I think of thinking what is above that's not what Paul says Paul grounds it immediately in our sex, in our sexual nature. That is to say, in being male and female, in how we conduct ourselves. He says, if you've died, then guess what? Put to death, which sounds interesting, doesn't it? I thought we were already dead. Yes, you've died with Christ. Now put whatever members, your body... All the various things, your will, your mind, your hands, your feet. All the things that God has given to you and all of us possess in this room right here. And you do righteousness with them. Put to death these things, which is sexual immorality. Now, in our culture today, in our cultural moment, there is the God of sex that is worshipped. In America and all across the world. It's particularly bad in America. And we could go into all sorts of things, but I'm going to let you read between the lines this morning. All that to say this, it's simple what the Bible teaches about our sexuality. Very simple. We try to act like it's complicated. We try to act like it's very difficult to understand. It is not. It's very clear in the scriptures from the beginning to the end. And it is this. Sex is to be enjoyed only in the covenant of Marriage with husband and wife, male and female. Anything else outside of that is sin. It's very simple. Anything else outside of that is wrong. It's misordered. And might I add, every body in this room is born disordered and misordered in our affections, our passions. And the lust of our flesh. Every single one of us needs to repent and believe. This is the message of Jesus. You say, Pastor, goodness, wow, you're bringing down uh, the whole thing here. We're we're, we're trying to look up. We're trying to look. Right. Before you can look up, you first have to repent. Repentance is necessary for belief. Nobody wants to hear that message. But Paul's angle here is not a suggestion, he doesn't say, Okay, since you've been baptized and are in Christ and have died to your old self, the old Adam that wants his way, then therefore I suggest you do these things. No, no, no. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And none of us like to hear that. We Americans don't like commands. But aren't we in a kingdom? Isn't there a king? What do kings do but command? Now... He's a good king. He knows, he knows this, that our full self is only realized in properly aligning ourselves, even sexually, to how God created. Because guess what? He's the one who created the whole thing. We didn't think it up. We can't vote a different way, and that be okay. We don't get together, and just because ang- everybody's angry about one thing, that now changes. no, no. no. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he created it to image himself. So how many of us are worshiping the God of sex? How many of us are worshiping the God of possessions? And we already heard this, of greediness. In other words, what we know in America is that the average Christian, okay, that's actually going to church, which, you know, there you go. We can talk about that later, but 2.5% is what they give. They don't even tip God, much less bring a tithe to God. Now, again, (laughs) I see you in clothes, which means somebody bought those and you have some sort of income, whether it's from the government or from your own hand or from the generosity of others like missionaries. Everybody receives something and everybody is required to give 10 percent in the Bible. That's the ground floor, okay? That's just, that's like, we don't even discuss that. That is what is. How many of you sitting here in sin today then? How many of you, if you look at your tax uh, return, can actually say, yeah, I gave over and beyond a 10% of what I brought in? Listen, I'm just preaching what Paul is saying here, and that is this sort of greediness is idolatry. And then, how many of us might be worshiping the God of power? Or, we could put it this way, maybe emotions, avarice, anger, wrath. Paul mentions the wrath of God. God doesn't get spun up in anger, right? He doesn't all of a sudden just, now I'm all of a sudden. No, no, he's always the same. And And anything that's disordered and misordered is always going to get burned. He's like the sun. The sun doesn't like me more than it likes you. It's how we approach the sun. How many of us need to repent today? You know, I used to think nobody really wanted to go to hell. You say, yeah, well, of course, (laughs) nobody really wants to go to hell, Pastor. Um, I think they do. I think some people, and maybe some of us in this room, would hate to be with God. If we hate the ways of God and the ways of his church and the ways of Christian virtue, we equally hate his way. For his church is his body. There is no difference. The church is his family. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in a church is right, but his church is holy because he is holy. And when we do not submit ourselves to his church, when we do not submit ourselves to his character, we will hate to be with him. We'll hate it. That's why we must be fit for heaven. He must, by his Holy Spirit, fit us to be with himself. And thanks be to God, he can do that by the power of the Spirit. As we set our mind on things that are above, we don't have to get bent out of shape when There's spilled spaghetti. When all of a sudden we lose our job. When somebody does us wrong. We don't have to get bent out of shape as if that was the very thing we lived for. We don't. And some of us need to repent for being angry at things that God doesn't care about at all. Well, (laughs) Don't let your emotions lead you. Don't let your own passions guide you. Whatever you do, don't follow your own heart. Instead, let God give you a new heart, a transformed mind. Give you the direction you need. We are not self-sustaining, and what we've heard today is if we chase after the things of this world and make a life of our own, it's nothing but a bubble. It's here, and then pop, it's gone. So, live, then, For what is above, beyond the sun, where Christ is enthroned. You can't take it away. You can't take it with you, so give it away. Give your life away today. That's the message here. Give your life away to Jesus Christ and spend it all on him and his church and reaching all of those who do not know the love of God, who are not a part of the family of God. That's. Where our minds should be. That's where we are to set our hearts. Put everything else to death. Detach yourselves from it. Carry it lightly. Breathe it in and then simply let it go. Enjoy the good things of this life that God has given given you. But do not make them ultimate. You can't be too heavenly minded to be of no earthly good. There's no such thing. So today, dear brothers and sisters, be heavenly minded. Set your eye, the eye of faith on Jesus Christ. Deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow him in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, amen.